Welcome to Talaterra, a podcast about freelance educators working in natural resource fields and environmental education. Who are these educators? What do they do? Join me and let's find out together. This is your host, Tanya Marion. guest is Dr. Kathyun Khalil, conservation and education professional and the conservation impact manager at the Oregon Zoo. Dr. Khalil is also the co-author of the book, Practical Evaluation for Conservation Education, Assessing Impacts and Enhancing Effectiveness. In my conversation with Dr. Khalil, we discuss why conservation is a people problem, And we also talk about sociology, biology, anthropomorphism, and teaching in informal learning environments. Let's jump right into the conversation. Thank you so much for joining me today to talk about empathy and environmental education. Can I ask you to introduce yourself, please, to listeners? Yeah, I'm Dr. Kathyun Khalil. I'm the Conservation Impact Manager at the Oregon Zoo in Portland, Oregon. Your specialty is using empathy to communicate science. Mm -hmm. And I first learned about your work at the spring conference of the Association for Environmental and Outdoor Education. And you gave a keynote a couple of years ago titled Empathy and Environmental Education. You have degrees in organismal biology and environmental science, as well as learning sciences and technology design. Mm -hmm. And you have a decade's well, more than a decade of work uh, experience in zoos, aquariums, museums, and nature centers. You embrace nature. You have a solid <laughs> embrace of nature and everything that you do and that you've done as far as I can go it's, back. It's been a predominant through line of yeah. career and life. <laughs> what is your earliest? So I like to begin a conversation this way. What is your earliest memory of enjoying nature? Well, I grew up on a farm outside of Portland, Oregon, a 20-acre Christmas tree farm, and I think my earliest memories were just running around that land, right? My parents would put us outside in the summer and don't come back till dinner and just explore what you want to explore. It was rarely guided. It was rarely supervised even. There was a, a very small creek that ran through the back of the property. And I love to go down to the creek and pretend all sorts of imaginary scenarios and cultures and peoples and um, build these complex, you know, for maybe a child narratives around the unseen occupants of this natural space. So I see that as kind of the first time that I really sought out the outdoors as a place to stimulate and enjoy and recreate and all that kind of stuff. When did nature become important to you? Well, I think in that line, it always was, right? My dad's a climate scientist, so we were definitely raised with this idea that, you know, the environment was important and it was, there were threats to the environment that were worth addressing. But growing up in such a wild and natural space, it was pretty much impossible to not think that this was important or that this was 
critical to our development and our, our sustenance as humans. And, and a lot of the children in that area grew up in similar spaces. It's a pretty farm rich area on the outskirts of Portland outside of the urban growth boundaries, which is pretty unique from an urban planning perspective. Mm-hmm. I think people have a, a general understanding of what empathy is and empathy towards another person. What does empathy for nature look like and sound like? Yeah, so empathy is a word that gets thrown around a lot. Um, It gets used in a lot of different contexts, sometimes incorrectly, lots of times correctly. We came up with our own definition, and that definition is a stimulated emotional state that relies on the ability to perceive, understand, and care about the experiences or perspectives of another person or animal. So in that, there's a lot that we can unpack, but some of the big terms or big word choices that we like to highlight include ability. So empathy is something that you can work on over time. You can be born a more or less empathic person, but it is also a skill that you can develop through practice. It's stimulated, which means it doesn't happen in a vacuum. It can be sparked by something or someone or some situation. You don't just go around empathizing all willy-nilly. And this person or animal connection is based on the idea that a lot of the existing research on empathy that has been done has been done on a people-to-people scale. And that's all very valuable. But there is research that has also demonstrated that empathy towards animals occurs along the same neural pathways as empathy for humans, which is very exciting because that means if we are developing empathy for animals, those same abilities can be used later to feel empathy for other human beings. It's not different and one doesn't necessarily need to precede the other. In an interview, you stated that conservation is a people problem, not an animal problem. Can you elaborate on this? Yeah, I think that is a really important thing for us as conservationists to understand that animal ecosystems without the presence of humans would do probably quite well. But with the increased competition that has been waged by having such a, you know, I don't want to say invasive species, but such a dominating species in a lot of landscapes, conservation really becomes about what people are doing and people's behaviors and people's livelihoods and lives. And just like we say that conservation is a people problem, that can be flipped on its head to say that conservation is also a people-based solutions field. So that is to say that people hold the solutions to a lot of the big conservation problems. So if you want to reframe it, yes, like we are the instigator of a lot of the threats that animals face. However, we are also the ones who house the innovative solutions that can be used to live in coexistence with animals and the rest of the natural world. I say that also because conservation historically has been very much a natural sciences field. When I was coming into the conservation world, I thought I had to do so as a biologist or an animal behaviorist or and something like that. And those are great, important fields that give us a lot of good information about the natural world. However, the social sciences have a lot of the potential solutions and answers and explanations, the hows and the whys that we might want to include, we definitely want to include when thinking about holistic conservation 
approaches. So in saying that conservation is a people problem, for me, that's really a leverage point to say that the social sciences are extremely critical, and it's redundant, but they're so, so important to the, the sustainability of a lot of our conservation work and need to be included and honored for their import. How do you as a social scientist work with the biologists or traditionally trained biologists? Do you reach out to them? Do they reach out to you? Who is the the liaison between those two fields? A little bit from column A, a little bit from column B. Um, (laughs) It just, it it really depends. So I think a lot of biologists are now seeing that for grant funding and for projects, they need social scientists to help with some of that work. And so we may enter into that way. We also are just making our presence known more throughout the field, especially in, in zoos and aquariums, which is kind of the world that I live in, and just making sure that people know what we're capable of, what we have expertise in, because there's also a lot of like, oh, well, I need a survey. Okay, well, I can do that. But that's not really fair, right? Like survey design is an art and interviewing is a skill that you hone over time. So Truly including the social sciences means including the people who are trained and have expertise in these areas, not just doing it yourself. And so we're trying to make ourselves known as partners, as collaborators, as equal uh, members in this inquiry process so that we can develop these holistic conservation projects that really look at multiple dimensions of a conservation issue. You mentioned also in a different presentation that in your field, there's discussion about when it is appropriate to talk about empathy and when it is not appropriate to talk about empathy or to use empathy as a way to encourage understanding of the natural world. What are some examples where you would draw on empathy and in what situations would you not draw on empathy and what would you do instead? Yeah. So it's really important to make this distinction because when you, we, we joke that when you have an empathy hammer, everything looks like an empathy nail and you go around trying to insert empathy in every single program and project, but it's just one in a suite of outcomes. It is a tool in your toolkit. At times, it may not be the right tool, just like any other tool may not be the right tool. I think a lot about the way we interpret and talk about predators and prey relationships, right? That it's very hard to simultaneously hold empathy for a predator and for prey. You're watching a nature show and they have to make a conscious decision about who they're asking you to root for, right? Who are they asking you to take the perspective of? Is it the starving lion that's going for the antelope that absolutely needs to make this kill or else it may not survive? Or is it the antelope that has a baby that wants to raise, you know, so you have to make these decisions about which is where, what is the target of your empathy? Where is the direction in which you want people to focus that empathic energy? And that's really important. We think about that a lot in animal decisions and animal care issues, right? That There's empathy, and that can be a wonderful way of trying to understand the animal's experience and how we can provide a better life for them. But in some situations, we may need to peel that empathy back to make a decision that's best for the entire community. And so it is, it it cannot be stated enough that once you learn empathy, it is a wonderful tool for activating certain behaviors, for getting 
um, people connected to animals, but it's not by any means the only way. It is one of many and can be a promising pathway to things like behavior change if that is what you are intending to do. How much does anthropomorphism get in the way of empathy and just any other tool that you have? Yeah, so it's funny the way you uh, frame that question, because already it makes anthropomorphism seem like a barrier, right? But we, anthropomorphism is a very useful tool under certain circumstances for connecting with the natural world, particularly with young children, because the way their brains have developed, part of that development includes seeing others as anthropomorphic peers and helping that to get, helping that understanding to start to distinguish what is a human, what is an animal. Some, If I hit someone, it feels like this. It feels like this when they hit me. You know, like all of that complexity of existence is based on making buckets and fitting things into buckets the way we process them. However, anthropomorphism does get into dangerous territory in certain circumstances. So when people lack knowledge about an animal, say, They fill in the gaps in their understanding with their own experience. So if you, the example we often give is, you know, if you have an octopus at an aquarium, octopus are solitary animals that like to live in the dark. And a lot of their exhibits in aquariums reflect that, right? They're not huge, although by octopus standards, they may be palatial. And they often include only one animal. And so people come up to that and they say, oh, that octopus looks so sad. If I were all by myself, I would be sad. He's got this dark den. If I were in a dark den, I would be really depressed. They don't understand or know all of these things about octopus biology that make this the ideal habitat for that animal. Instead, they overlay their own feelings on top of it. And then that gives them um, what we call unenlightened anthropomorphism, which is the dangerous territory that we want to kind of weave people away from. So we often say that with anthropomorphism, um, again, it's another tool. Think about how to use it in a way that gets people to understand an animal's experience. We say that when you have an animal that is very different from humans, like a barnacle or a sea star, you can lean more heavily on the anthropomorphism because you're trying to get people to understand that this individual is an animal in the first place, not a rock or a flower especially also with uh, aversive animals like snakes and spiders, a little bit of anthropomorphism goes a long way to helping people to feel empathy for those creatures. But when an animal is very similar to us, you want to lean off of that a little bit because you want people to understand the differences between our experience and their experience, like a chimpanzee or an elephant, and understand that the human experience is not the only thing that is important to you know, our worldview. And so rather than being anthropomorphic, I would caution people against being anthropocentric. That's saying that humans have dominion over the entire range of emotions that could possibly exist in the world. That is far more damaging than saying that animals and humans have common emotional states that may be triggered by similar circumstances. So the empathy research that I've read, the articles that I've read out there, uh, involve animals, empathy and animals. Okay, But what about the other non-human life forms that are are not animals? Uh, For example, 
um, plants is my is, is my thinking. Uh, what I used to do was very much a focus on encouraging an interest in plants. And of course, there is this this issue called plant blindness, where people are more in, in, more in more familiar with the animals than they are with plants, and they tend not to notice the plants in their in their surroundings. And so, when you're talking about something that uh, people cannot relate to, or something that people cannot see themselves in, what where can you start to have this conversation to explain the value of of plants in this case? Yeah, yeah. So it's really interesting because there's a lot of lines, a lot, of, a lot of routes to go with this, right? The first one I'll say is one that I, you know, say over and over again that empathy is not the only tool, and it's also important not to conflate empathy with other attitudinal or emotional states, right? So empathy and love are not the same thing. Empathy and curiosity are not the same thing. Empathy and respect, not the same thing. You can hate something and feel a lot of empathy for it, right? In fact, a lot of people who feel like spiders or snakes are coming to get them and they want to bite them, like that's empathy. They're just projecting their own, you know, their own intentions onto that animal's intentions and it's incorrect, right? But they're looking at a perspective of that animal in the world. They're just supposing that that perspective is something something evil right and so with plants i think i wouldn't i would caution against jumping immediately to empathy that you want people to feel empathy for plants we want maybe to start with awareness right and one of the ways that i have loved doing that in my own teaching is by asking people to just sit and have close observation of a singular plant for an extended period of time right? Maybe it's 20 minutes, maybe it's 25 minutes. And the first five minutes are kind of torturous because you're like, why am I doing this? This is crazy. And then your whole microcosm (laughs) becomes this plant. And you start to see the insects that come in and out, you start to see water and veins and and buds where you didn't before. So I think one of the best ways to, to overcome plant blindness is to make people see, right? And really to delve into close observation, which can help people to understand the role of an individual in an ecosystem and pay closer attention to all the all the different services that that plant may provide. The whole focus of my previous endeavor was to use drawing as a learning tool to encourage an interest in plants. And mm-hmm. so it was it was I took that angle with that uh, subject and years ago I read a book called Plants as Persons: A Philosophical Botany. And the person who wrote this book uh, wrote it to provide an in-depth look at human-plant relationships in Western, Eastern, pagan, and indigenous cultures. And it was a very, very interesting book and really made you think about, you know, changing your relationship with plants and getting, you know, his objective was to get people to, Matthew Hall, Dr. Matthew Hall was the author, to encourage. get people thinking about nature in a different way. He explains the human plant relationships observed in Hinduism, Buddhism, and Jainism, and showing that it's really complicated. It's a complicated subject. It's not just look at the plant, see it, don't see it. It, Mm -hmm. It's involved. There's a lot informing that experience and that relationship uh, with plants with plants in particular. And I assume that you find the same with animals as well. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, all of the empathy work that we have done so far has been from a very Western perspective, right? Uh, has been as researchers who are rooted in English language speaking Western cultures. I mean, I am Middle Eastern and Pakistani, I'm Iranian and Pakistani. And so I have a little bit of understanding of where my mother and fatherland cultures you know, exist in their relationships with animals. And they are, they can be very different from the Western perspective. But by and large, that is something that we are working towards in the next iterations of this project is trying to be more inclusive um, in a real way and looking at how empathy translates across cultural boundaries um, and along spectrums of belief systems. Because we know that things like anthropomorphism completely fall apart when you talk about some indigenous cultures that believe there is no difference, right, between a a human and a non-human animal. And so anthropomorphism, that concept doesn't even apply. And so how can we try and understand some of those complexities? That's a guiding question for the future of our work. You'll be doing this work at the zoo then? Yeah, yeah. in the zoo and aquarium world. So the original project Mm -hmm. was done when I was at the Seattle Aquarium um, as a joint uh, research endeavor or or translating research to practice between the Seattle Aquarium, the Woodland Park Zoo, and the Point Defiance Zoo and Aquarium. Since I moved to Oregon, I've continued collaborating on the project. It's given us a good opportunity to test things out in a new space. But necessarily, the work that we do will look a little bit different because we are in different places now, but also because of the COVID crisis and um, where our institutions are financially, resource-wise, and personnel-wise. And so we'll be trying to now more than ever be strategic and intentional in our approaches to this work um, and understanding where our greatest impact can be. Seems to me that right now, environmental educators have the unique opportunity to connect with parents in a more personal way, especially um, working within their communities, maybe people establishing learning pods or just people being, you know, working with their neighbors to help them create programs or experiences for for neighbors and the children of neighbors. Uh, so we have now then parents that are involved in a variety of school subjects, including science, and they're giving these subjects a level of attention that maybe wasn't happening pre-COVID hmm. for a variety of reasons. Uh, Sitting on the freeway in traffic is just one of them, <laughs> right? Right. Um, uh, how can environmental educators leverage this attention to establish generous and thoughtful dialogue with parents? Yeah, I think one thing that's happened in all in the midst of all of this unrest is that we've become more our nuclear world to become a lot smaller right? We've become a lot more community focused. In some cases, we become a lot more backyard focused. And so I think leveraging that and really getting people to pay attention to their local ecosystem, to the parks and and green spaces that surround them, that's going to be huge for the work of environmental educators, the local exploration. Because in a lot of places, that's the only thing that feels safe, right? Being outside is the only way that we can recreate with others um, in a socially distant manner. But even more than that, it's opening up a new world of stimulation beyond the four walls of our houses, right? And so I think this is a unique opportunity for those of us who have worked in, you know, local community conservation to really step up and say, okay, I can help with this. Like, put me in coach. This is my jam. And 
connect to our local communities and connect our communities to the ecosystems that we've been so fond of for so long. In your experience, what resonates with the people you interact with at the zoos and the museums and the nature centers and all the all the places where you've worked with the public? What turns lights on for them or what makes them pause and think about, begin to think about nature and the environment in a different way? I think for me, the thing that keeps me working at zoos and aquariums and that keeps me so excited about that space is just the live animal experience is so, so difficult to replicate in the virtual world. There is something about, and we talk about this in our empathy work, that there is something about a rich experience where an animal is doing something in front of you that makes you feel like this is the only time that's happened today, this hour, maybe ever, right? And you're seeing something truly special. And that it's not curated. It's not doing it for your entertainment, right? Like it is something that is happening because the animal is taking agency to make it happen. So the live animal experience is so critical to our formation of empathy and our just connection to the natural world. And that's where I really like thinking about how we can do more and do better um, to use that live animal experience to really deepen that connection between people and animals. One tactic that I like particularly is treating animals as individuals. We often say that when you give someone a name, you give someone a narrative. So it can be any tiger in the world, or it can be Bernadette, the tiger who lives with her sister Eloise at the Oregon Zoo, right? And all of a sudden, Bernadette is an individual. Like Bernadette has likes and dislikes and places she likes to sit and games she likes to play and a mother and a father and all of these things that help us to feel like that animal is unique. And so individuality is such an important way that we latch on to things with our our human brain that using that to connect people to animals can be so powerful, even small animals, right? Like you can try it out with a spider in your house. Like you could look at that spider and dissociate from it and try to ruin it. Or you can look at that spider and introduce yourself and say, I know it sounds a little silly, but but it, it's an interesting exercise to say, this is no longer just a spider. This is Francine, Francine, the spider that lives in my house. And see if that shifts anything in your brain about how you feel towards that individual. There's also an interesting choice between male and female or non-binary pronouns and what we choose to ascribe to animals that don't. So all of that can be taken into account and used to help create closer connections between people and animals. That's very good. That's a very good point. I used to, when I was in college, in the community college, I used to take care of the zoology lab and take the animals out to the classrooms and do classroom visits. And the kids always asked, you know, what their names were, you know, mm-hmm. and, and that was always like the start of a conversation. And so... Yeah, no, that's that's a very good point. I don't know. Yeah, I was wondering if that would work with plants. What do you think? I don't know. I guess it could. It could. And some people yeah. do name their plants. Some people name their cars, right? Yeah. And it gives them that closer yeah, I, I name connection. My car. Yeah. Yes. Um, we care <laughs> about names in our culture, right? If I introduce myself and you decide like, mm, you don't look like a Kathy and you look like a Stacy. Like that's a weird and like offensive thing to do to someone. We want to get people's names right. People's names matter. They're important. And so when we say that an animal doesn't have a name, What are we effectively saying about that animal's worth and value to us? 
is that mm-hmm. worth it? You know, a lot of people say, well, I don't want to name this animal. It's a scientific blah, blah, blah. But it's like, okay, is it really worth shutting down the emotional connection just so people understand that this animal is not your pet? Or are there other ways that you can demonstrate respect for this animal and allow the animal to have individuality and a, a place where people can land and connect with the animal on a narrative level? So a, a lot of the people listening to this podcast work in informal learning environments and in communities, uh, work in, in communities. So they these are independent uh, educators. They don't necessarily have a nature center, a museum museum, a zoo, an aquarium, or anything like that to go to. They work out at diff- all sorts of different community venues. Their engagement with the public is very, it's brief, just like in any other free choice learning environment. It's brief, but it's maybe even more brief, I'll dare to say, that because they don't have this facility that can keep people engaged or in place longer what tools can they use to engage with people who come visit their booths and their tables to engage with whatever it is that they're doing? What might they consider doing to prolong a conversation? Yeah. So I think when we have these short dosage interactions, it's really important to keep our messages simple, keep them direct, and understand what we're trying to communicate. It, it can be so tempting when you have a mic, right, to say every single thing that you know, feel and want people to do. But that is going to be overwhelming, it's going to leave them with no takeaways, and nothing's going to echo in their minds after they leave you, right. So I think this is really important when we think about evaluation is thinking about your outcomes and what you want people to know, feel and do after any interaction, be it 30 seconds or a whole summer, right, and matching your outcomes realistically to the dosage that you have to the exposure that you have to someone. And so if you want to make the most of that time, honing in on one specific message, and maybe what people can do to learn more resources that they can use to delve deeper, don't expect that they're going to. But sometimes having the resources, you hear it enough, eventually, there's a tipping point, right? And so That's the other part of it is trying to work together as much as possible, trying to overlay and find out who are the people who are giving the same message and how can we amplify and echo each other so that one of us can serve as the tipping point for the, you know, for that person's understanding or for their intention, moving their intention to actual action. So here I have this thought, this question that always is floating around my head ever since this whole COVID thing started and in everybody's head as well, but how to be as meaningful as possible. I mean, create as meaningful connection as possible at a distance at six feet or more and through zoom and all that. Whereas at some point or by now we should, I'm thinking that we are just absolutely maxed out on our, we don't have any more bandwidth for (laughs) learning something online, right? Or at least looking through a screen. And schools are starting to open up. Of course, there's these learning pods. What can be achieved at a distance of six feet or more? Real- realistically, do you think? Well, some of, some of that interpretation that we talked about that occurs outdoors, on beaches, in forests, things like that. We know that, uh, I mean, I'm not a epidemiologist, but from what I understand, COVID does not survive as well out 
stores, um, there's a lot more dispersion that can occur. And so guiding people into those experiences can be really powerful, especially for families that may not feel comfortable taking their kids out into nature by themselves, offering opportunities to be that guide, to be that kind of that link for folks between the inside world and the outside world can be a really powerful place. Also, it's important to remember that this isn't going to last forever, that this may be a wonderful time for us to sit down and think and regroup and figure out how we want to approach the new reality when it comes. Because this is a temporary state that we're in right now. And as environmental educators, I feel like we often are moving at a million miles per minute trying to make sure that we do as many programs as possible and we get the funding and we get, you know, getting people outside, et cetera, et cetera. But like, Maybe this is our opportunity to slow down, take a step back, and make sure that our approaches are still what we want them to be, and start to think about changing things that are just being done because that's the way it's always been, right? That's the the death of every great idea is, <laughs> but we've always done it this way. And so where can we challenge ourselves during this time to think about how we can come out stronger on the other side and be even more impactful? Because people will be craving these real life experiences. So what can we offer them on the other side instead of right now that can really maximize our impact? So if this pause, if we reframe this pause as a gift, what in your work might you do differently? Well, we've been thinking a lot about how, about inclusivity and about our diversity and equity initiatives and trying to understand how we can make bigger strides in the directions that we want to go, thinking about how we can create programs that dismantle some of the racist systems that conservation was built on. And so that's been a big, a big thing for us at the zoo is really considering the part that we play in those systems, the part that conservation plays, and all the needs of the various audiences that we have in helping to break those systems down and create more equitable approaches to conservation in the future. You know, we're not able to fly around the world right now. We're not able to, um, we're not able to go to conferences, you know, in person, any of that. So we're really sitting down and working with the people we have here in Portland and thinking about the folks that are coming through our facility in this, even in a limited capacity and trying to, to understand what are the core priorities, the core responsibilities that we have as a visitor-serving community-based institution to do work that furthers all people's involvement in conservation. What do you think might change at the zoo then? The signage, the language that, the text on the signage, or what, what exactly? Sure. Yeah. The signage, the text, the presence or absence of signs, maybe signs mm-hmm. don't serve us anymore in a lot of areas. I think a big thing that'll change or that we need to think about are the stories that we tell. Often we tell stories of animals that are very disconnected from any stories of humans. Not, not everywhere, of course. Some institutions do this very well, but we tell stories about animals as though they live in this Edenic wild, or on the other hand, as though they live in this completely ravaged place. But We don't think a lot about the people who live alongside these animals and rangelands, what their perspectives might be, what their cultures may look like. I think a lot bringing that into our work will be more important, but also thinking about, we talk about a one health approach to conservation 
that really demonstrates how we all are interconnected. And we're seeing this now in this pandemic, right? That there is evidence to suggest that all of this is starting because of some pretty troubling relationships that we have with wildlife that have led to wildlife trade and trafficking. And if that is true, then those issues are no longer 3,000, 4,000, 5,000 miles away. They're right here in your house. And so how do we get people to understand? How do we get people to really connect, not just with the animal, but with the whole picture, the whole interconnectedness of people and ecosystems and animals (laughs) and cultures and recognize their part in that web and how important it is to approach a relationship with nature in a new way. In conservation biology, or uh, really field biology in general, field biologists, they're the frontline interpreters, if you will, for the, for the field. What can they do? Or what, I don't want to say should, but what might they do differently in the work that they do when they work with companies, with developers or with the transportation departments, you know, to build a new highway. I mean, they, you know, there's always a biologist that's involved for surveys of whatever, you know, wildlife surveys, botanical surveys. How might they change what is become the same old, same old, same old Mm -hmm. process? I think it's important to look at who has the mic, right? Like who is doing all of the talking? That is that's kind of where it starts, right? If, if the same people are telling the same stories over and over and over again, or sharing the same information, where are there opportunities to pass the microphone on to someone else who may not be as, you know, well represented in the dialogue, and see if they have something new to add a new perspective, right? We know from the business literature that diversity leads to more innovative solutions to problems can um, offer cost savings and, you know, higher profits, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. And so just like biodiversity in the natural world, these two resilient communities, diversity in our problem solving worlds can lead to more resilient solutions. And so we should take that lesson and make sure that we understand the voices that are being shared and the stories that they're sharing. I think that's a big, big place to start. It it is also, you know, we often talk about science communication and and helping scientists to communicate their stories better. And that is excellent. But it is also important to recognize the professionalism inherent in environmental education. It is a field of study that requires a deep level of knowledge, expertise, skills that are developed over years, decades, right? Theoretical perspectives that are grounded in psychology and sociology, And it often gets brushed aside as like, well, I mean, it's just teaching kids out in the woods how to like make a pine cone wreath, you know, but we as environmental educators have a responsibility now to elevate the professionalism of our work. And a lot of that comes from taking the stand, like taking the mic where it's important for us to speak up, but also making sure that we are accountable to ourselves and to each other to integrate the best practices in our field into our own practice instead of saying, well, I really like doing things this way when that's not how, you know, how you achieve conservation action or that's not how you foster empathy. It is our responsibility to understand what we are learning about environmental education and integrate that into our own work. 
Yes. And the, the field is diverse in that, you know, people work in it in so many different ways. I, my focus, my attention goes to the people who work independently, who started something on their own, saw something that needed to be fixed, and they work in their communities and all sorts of different ways outside mm-hmm. of the traditional venues. Yeah, and that's great. I think, you know, education at large has really suffered from this idea of it being women's work, right? And this issue with feminization and the feminine being seen as less than um, or as not as or secondary to the masculine or the what they, you know, the hard sciences. I hate that term. And so there is patriarchy behind a lot of this. And I think when you recognize that, then it's like pulling the curtain back on the Wizard of Oz, right? That like, oh, well, that's just that doesn't need to be that way. Like, that's not as scary as I thought it was. Like, we can dismantle that. I mean, it's going to be challenging, but it's not just this thing that's so rooted in our consciousness, or it's not an absolute truth that education is easy or simple, right? It is a purposeful oppression of a subject because it is seen as being more feminine in a patriarchal society. Yes, you mentioned in a different presentation I saw for yours, the hard sciences and the soft sciences on how the soft sciences are often dismissed. Yes. Yeah. And that terminology, right, is very troubling as well, because hard is seen as being absolute and truth and masculine and soft is seen as being squishy and uncertain and vague and not serious and feminine. Right. And so and I don't mean necessarily boy or girl. I mean, like the academic Mm -hmm. definitions of masculine and feminine. And that's really troubling, right? And it's also mm-hmm. not the way it has to be. Yeah, because I don't, in my project, I have the initial survey. When I started this project, I have 43, uh, 43 people took the survey and they provided really thoughtful, long-form answers, which gives me lots to talk about, lots of talking points. Okay, but but to some people, 43 is not a sample size. For me, it's huge because they provided such deep responses and Mm -hmm. more than I was could have hoped for. And so I'm always partly live on the defense, you know, waiting for that pushback. It's like, qualitative scientists are Mm -hmm. always on the Mm -hmm. defensive. I mean, my entire dissertation sample was 40 people, but Mm -hmm. it was hours long interviews and surveys coupled together, you know, and deep analysis and coding for themes. And so, yeah, we get really attached to these ideas of big data and the quant being the thing that has all the answers, but quantitative has some answers and qualitative has some answers. And the best research is really mixed. The best research has both so that we understand not only the who's, the what's, the where's, but also the how's and the why's. Mm-hmm. What do you feel is not understood about conservation efforts? A couple things. I think one thing that has plagued us for a long time in environmental education is this idea that the more we tell people, the more information we give people, the more likely they'll be to care and then to act. That idea that like, well, if I just tell them every cool thing that I know about this animal, how could they not think this animal is the coolest thing in the world and want to save it? that's just not the way behavior works, right? And I beat this drum over and over again, as many of my colleagues do, 
that knowledge, attitude, and behavior are not linearly related, and that if you actually want to achieve behavior change, it's a lot more complicated than just telling people all the cool facts about an animal. And so that's a that's a big one um, that I keep seeing over and over people using knowledge and then hoping for behavior instead of actually targeting the behavior that they want to see changed. I think the other thing that really troubles me is this idea that saving animals is a luxury or that saving nature is an elite activity. That is extremely problematic for a variety of reasons, but it it often comes into form when people say, well, there's so many things going on with people in the world. Why should we think about animals in the environment? And that's where it gets back to that holistic approach where we need people to understand that it's not an either or. It's not saving animals for animals' sake. It's saving eco, protecting ecosystems so that we can all coexist on this planet. That we are not, and I, again, I hope this pandemic helps us to understand this, but we are not apart from nature. We are not immune to natural forces, and that our actions um, in the world have consequences, not only for animals, but for ourselves as well. And so that is something that I feel like we need to detangle, and that comes with issues of equity and access and where, where we're doing our programming and how we are accessing our audiences, who is doing the educating, who is at the table. All of those are tied in with this, but it has become, we're getting to a critical point now where We need to help people to understand that conservation is a priority across cultures, across peoples, across landscapes, and not just relegated to a select few. Yes, it's beautifully said. I don't know (laughs) what else to say to that. Um, um, What's next for you? Hmm. I think about that a lot. My heart is always going to be in zoos and aquariums. This is the space in which I want to work. I think right now is a time when I have tried to tried not to emphasize the plans that I had for my life and try to spend more time listening to the needs of the world as they start to evolve. Zoos are going to play a critical part in the rebuilding of communities, in people coming together and feeling safe amongst others, and in people feeling like what I said before, that they are connected to the natural world. And so I'm excited for the role we're going to play, but I think next comes a lot of conscious and intentional thought about what that, what our activities look like in, in service of those goals. And so I think that's, you know, one of the powers of the social sciences is thinking about people at the center of solutions. And I plan with my fellow social science colleagues and also our, our non-social science colleagues to really flex those muscles and think about how we can come together and collaborate not as one institution and another institution, but as as groups of people working towards a common goal who all have a passion for saving animals. So some of that may look like empathy. Some of that may look like equity work. Some of that may look like something that I don't even know yet. But I think the, th- the themes of collaboration and inquiry and listening will be pervasive throughout no matter what, what form they end up taking. Thank you, Kathy. Thank you for your leadership and for the research that you've done and for your time today and for introducing listeners to your work. I so appreciate it. And I'm just absolutely thrilled to have this opportunity to learn from you again, to have spend more time with you. So thank you so much. 
Well, thanks for the opportunity. It was really wonderful to chat and a great, a great chance to have some of these big conversations. To learn more about Dr. Khalil and conservation education, please visit the show notes for this episode. Here you will find links to articles, Dr. Khalil's book, and videos as well. Alaterra is a podcast for and about independent educators working in natural resource fields and environmental education. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with friends and colleagues. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Tanya Marion.